The intention here is to practice vipassana meditation, but you are welcome to use this space to develop samatha practice or both, wherever you feel you need to focus and develop your skills, refine your skills. They are both connected, but just to remember that samatha meditation by itself does not lead to a transcendent state of mind, to the eradication of the kilesas, to liberation from dukkha. So it should always be followed up by, enhanced by, complemented by the pursuit of wisdom through the vipassana practice. In that way, we can fulfill the Eightfold Noble Path. Otherwise, you might fulfill Sama Samadhi, Samasati Sama Samadhi, but not to the extent that you can realize Nibbana. Also, you will notice that if you are practicing Vipassana meditation and you realize a certain fruit in your practice that it changes you from the inside. Then when you meet your friends, when you interact with people at work or just when you're at home with your family, you may notice some deep changes in yourself. If you practice samatha meditation, you will also experience some changes. But if you stop meditating, you can become wild again. (laughs) But if you practice insight meditation up to the point of sotapatimaga and you become a stream enterer, then you're in a different ocean. You're a different kind of fish. Forever. You never go backwards. You never fall back to the old pond, the little pond. You get to be in the big pond. The bigger pond means the Arya lineage. This is a deep inner transformation. We can no longer have any doubts about the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha as an ultimate refuge. We no longer believe in a personality view that I am a person separate, distinct from everyone else. We are no longer interested in propping up that kind of construct. In fact, it's like a disease. It is the source of Most of the dukkha on this planet is this person, personal interest that is constantly propelling us to look for ways to make ourselves feel better, look better, 
get more, be lavished with gifts or praise or comforts or pleasant experiences from life. Sometimes at the expense, oftentimes at the expense of other people. Therefore, misery arises. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. If you want others to be happy, you practice compassion. Compassion, in the ultimate sense, means the ability to feel other people's pain. It's a completely unselfish state of mind, true compassion. So if we're constantly worried about propping up this dubious self, unreal self, then it is impossible for us to be unselfish because we are caught up in greed, greedy for nice experiences, greedy for a new computer. There's nothing wrong with this, mind you. But it's just that we get distracted with our own stuff. And we're not interested in what other people need or want or how they are. So you see, the benefits of practicing for the eradication of these defilements are that we bring blessing to other people, having forever vanquished this self-view and forever turned away from doing for our own sake. Instead, we are doing for the sake of others. Actually, you can forget about samatha, you can forget about vipassana. Just practice kindness. If you can perfect kindness, then you have perfected the path. Everything is in kindness, the real kindness and compassion. Don't get hung up on labels, on techniques, on sectarian ways of doing things. Just moment by moment, practice kindness. Kindness to oneself means sati. Sati is the highest generosity. We give our, ourselves a gift every moment that we spend being attentive and seeing with clear comprehension, with clear understanding what is arising in our own consciousness. This is a moment of generosity. So that's where kindness is born. Kindness is born in the middle of sati. When you are able to stay with the object, penetrate the object and understand its ultimate characteristics, you cannot be fooled anymore by greed, by hatred and delusion. Where will you be fooled? You no longer believe in that self. That's actually a little moment of little glimpse of Nibbana. If you can realize the fourth insight of Udaya Bhayanyana, this is the rapid arising and ceasing of phenomena. That's called the little sotapana, the little stream entry 
is right there. So many of us can get there. It's possible. It's within our reach. Then once we have realized that insight, the insight into Magapala at the stage of stream entry is guaranteed. It's just a question of practice. So when we have understood the real origin of dukkha in the mind, then we have understood the real origin of sukkha. We're not talking about a sukkha that is self-obsessed. It's a sukkha that is liberated from the self. Therefore, it is made up of kindness. It has the taste of loving kindness. They are not separate. You can examine your life. I ask you to examine your life. Where are the bits, where are the sharp edges in your life? Where are you suffering? What's bothering you? This is not a psychological clinic. Don't worry. (laughs) But this is simply the Buddha's medicine, is to examine what is the origin of our suffering? Where is it arising? First of all, we, we have to realize that we are suffering. But I think as soon as you close your eyes, now some of you are very expert meditators, so you'll You'll close your eyes and you'll just experience blissful states. But what happens when you come home and the person that you are having an argument with opens the door and you see their face and you feel really angry? Then can you say that you're not suffering? You might be a good meditator. You might be able to experience all the jhanas of the form world, the fine material world, and the formless jhanas. But then when you come back to a difficult situation, you erupt with anger. Then you can say, oh, yes, I have suffering. What is the origin of it? Then once we understand that and we have practiced Inside meditation, we understand the origin of goodness, the origin of liberating happiness. We understand how to bring this path to life and how to end that dukkha. So we know the possibility of overcoming, penetrating through that unwholesome mind state. And we know how to fulfill this path. We know that this path leads to the cessation of that difficult feeling in the heart. More than that, it leads to the uprooting of the contractions of the heart, of the spasms of the heart. It's a medicine. The kindness is a medicine. If every time we were suffering, we could be kind to ourselves just by realizing that there are five khandhas, arising and ceasing, then our suffering would fall away from us in a snap, in an instant. You see, you look at beautiful Julia. She is hardly living anymore. Her body is so sick. 
But her mind is so luminous. It doesn't matter about the body. She has really understood. She has penetrated so deeply to the heart of this teaching. And she abides in loving kindness when she wakes up, constantly dedicating her loving wishes to all the beings that she knows and beyond. And yet, when you come into her presence, you feel this this person must be suffering, and she's in a lot of pain, too, physical pain. She doesn't think about herself. Someone who has fulfilled this practice would bring to us a feeling, a sense of deep inspiration, deep reverence. We would feel this is a miracle. We also feel, I want to do this. I want to be like this. What do I have to do to behave like this? Purify. Be patient. Practice. Open up our eyes and see the truth. Don't run after pleasant experience. So practicing samatha, practicing tranquility, we always do it with the intention that after the mind becomes so powerful and so strong, we will dedicate ourselves to developing the Eightfold Path, to completing the Eightfold Path. We would already have developed it to quite a state to be able to sustain the jhana. You would have samasati and samasamadhi. But what is your conduct like? You're still capable of not very nice speech. Maybe you wouldn't go and hit anyone, but you could still practice unkindness or cruelty, even in subtle forms. We have to be able to find the true refuge, the the true protection, and that's to reach the first level of liberation from the khandas and from wrong view, from wrong action, from wrong speech. We have to perfect certain qualities the sotapanna is also not attached anymore to rites and rituals of religious convention, for example, as a way of liberation. If you burn the candles on the shrine, only then is the puja valid or something like that. This is sila pataparamasa. This is believing in the conventions themselves as being intrinsic to liberation. Or that you have to bow a certain way. You have to bow from a standing position. Or that you have to sit cross-legged. One lady asked me this morning, she was in distress. She said, I can't sit like that. I can't sit with my legs crossed. I said, no problem. It doesn't matter. Oh, really? It doesn't matter. You could be sitting in the lotus posture and not move for a whole hour, but your mind is burning, on fire. Greed, thoughts of ill will. We don't know. We don't have radar. Supposing we had electrodes tied up to each person in the room and we were watching on a screen. 
it doesn't depend on your posture. It depends on your ability to sustain a pure state of mind and not get kidnapped by thoughts of sense desire, by thoughts of ill will, and by the confusion or delusion in the mind. But you see, because we are earthlings and we are conditioned by culture, by years of cultural and social conditioning, psychological influences, so many subtle things going on in the making up of a human being. Then we get easily swayed by other people's opinions. And we are easily influenced. We want people to like us. Isn't it true? Yeah, we want to be liked. We want to be loved, not only liked. This is dangerous. Because as soon as we are so concerned about what other people think of us, then we are not paying attention to this experience. We are busy thinking, do they like me? Do they hate me? What should Adapting our behavior to get approval all the time. Just contemplate how many thoughts of your waking hours, how many moments of your thinking time, your waking time, are spent worrying about what somebody thinks of you. Does nobody have those kind of thoughts? I think all of us have those kind of, what what they think of me or what they used to think of me or what they will think of me or what I wish they would think of me to be popular, to look good. You think you don't? Do you look in the mirror every day? Is it beautiful enough? (laughs) Another hairdo. (laughs) Makeup, clothes, the clothes that we wear. Even when we have robes. Is it the right color? Does it fall elegantly? (laughs) Too many patches. If we have ten patches, we're allowed to ask for a new robe. If you wear patched clothing in this society, people will shake their heads. You'll get fired from your job. That's how much the world is caught up with appearances. I'll never forget, even when I was a tiny little kid, my mother used to say, don't look at the box, but look at the inside. Don't look at the wrapper. Look in it. What's inside the box? And I was always fascinated by this because then for the rest of my life, everybody's always judging by the outside. My mother knew. She kept warning me. Don't get caught up. And she always lived like that. She didn't want to wear jewelry. She didn't want to wear fancy clothes. My father always wanted to buy her beautiful things. No, no, no. She's so simple. She made such an impact on me. She was my role model for this. She wasn't formally a nun, but she was the best example that you could find. 
So it doesn't depend on dressing up like something. It depends on what you're doing within yourself. So you might look good in the eyes of society, but you know what you look like from the inside. No one else might know, but you know. And it can be read in your eyes, in your face. Whatever there is on the inside, it comes through from our energy, how we speak, how we behave, how we treat each other. How much are we able to live with kindness? And when you meet somebody that's really kind, deeply compassionate, you don't want to leave their presence. You feel like bowing your head. You feel love. This is a Dhamma love. It's exalted, immeasurable, like the Brahma Viharas. So therefore, when we sit here with our eyes closed, looking, observing our experience, we're doing it for a very wonderful reason. So that we can develop our quality, the qualitative state of our mind. As human beings, we want to develop ourselves to be the best that we are capable of being then we could walk around in rags. People would still be so happy to have us with them. doesn't matter. Let's sit together for a few moments. With your mind, with your mental attention. You aim for the object and then you pierce it or you bite it they say sometimes that's another simile you can use is that you actually bite it in order to taste it taste the mountain in that way you will be aware very quickly, what kind of state your mind is in. Just like a computer that scans a document, it reads the document and transmits it. So the mindfulness of the object reads the object and transmits that information into our consciousness and then we can know the qualities of that object. Is the breath short or is it long? If we're not paying attention, then there will be no information about the object because the mind will be caught up in the past or the future or in unwholesome states of mind, worry, agitated, excited, restless, sleepy, torpid. That's a good word, torpid. Torpid is that you are in a bit of a haze. You just can't really figure out what you're experiencing. You're in a fog. 
But if we can be patient and keep working with that, just know that there is fog or know that there is lack of clarity. That too is a moment of mindfulness. Or if you're experiencing doubt, then know that you are doubting. Use the doubt as an object of meditation. No moment need be wasted. Let your mindfulness be like that strong radar equipment. Constantly scooping up information about the qualities of the object and transmitting them into the citta. So when you smell a particular smell, then what will arise is consciousness of that smell. Based on mindfulness, that consciousness will not deteriorate into states of greed or aversion. It will just be the pure knowing of the object. If we move from one pure knowing moment to another pure knowing moment, eventually we will have some insight into the true nature of the object. Sati is like the navigator of the ship, constantly bringing us back to bearing witness to our own inner experience. Letting go of time, we let go of all concept, all thought, all conceptual or discursive thinking. We just renounce it moment by moment. We study the object from the beginning to the middle and then we watch it pass away. Just watch, knowing and watching. If we're clinging, we just come to know the clinging and letting it go. If we're impatient, know that. Realize it's not me or myself. It is impatience. It's an energy. We release it. When we release it, our mindfulness grows. Our samadhi grows. Our effort is purified. Our faith is strengthened. And wisdom follows soon afterwards. But in order to do this, to complete this process, we must already be applying a certain measure of wisdom. And in the sati itself, we are using discernment to understand the true nature of every object arising in consciousness. 
as our attention becomes more and more precise and we are grounded, established in the practice, we begin to notice the refinement in the mind. We may start to experience bliss. And as the samadhi deepens, that bliss may settle and become even more refined to a subtle happiness, a contentment. We feel nutritionally complete in a spiritual way. And then we experience upeka in the form of emotional balance. Upeka is the doorway to Nibbana, a real perfected Upeka. Going more and more towards stillness means that we are going more and more towards changelessness. Change, when things are changing, that means they are arising and ceasing or being born and dying. Every moment there is a birth and a death. But as we practice and as we cultivate and approach the realization of Nibbana, we find ourselves stopping more and more deeply. The absolute stilling of the mind means going beyond change altogether. That is Nibbana. The complete stilling of all movement in the mind. The extinguishing of all suffering at the root. Just think of it, a sotapanna is incapable of breaking the five precepts. Cannot. Therefore, we must never give up. The only thing to give up is unwholesomeness in the mind. Abandon the unwholesome and abide in purity. So it's not the object that we are observing that will liberate us. Not at all. That would be a real trivialization of this path and this noble teaching. It is our ability to sustain a purified knowing consciousness that will help us break through the veils of delusion forever. <laughs>